Welcome to the podcast of Pengrove Community Church. We exist to bring glory to God through lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. Our church is located about 45 minutes north of San Francisco, and if you live in the area, we'd love to have you join us. You can also learn more about us online at pengrovechurch.org. Enjoy the sermon. Well, we're going to be getting back into the gospel of John this morning. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. And what we have in this passage to sort of prepare your, your mind, your heart before we read it, this passage describes Jesus finding and calling two more disciples. Finding and calling two more disciples, these guys Philip and Nathaniel. So this is the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. And he's going around calling these men to follow him. We know from history, we know from the Bible that these men will become the 12 disciples and they will change the world. More than anybody ever has or ever will, aside from Jesus, these 12 men are going to change the world. But at this point, they are a bunch of nobodies from nowhere. Nobodies from nowhere. Keep that in mind. These guys are not the focus. They're nobodies and that's the point. Jesus didn't go to the great centers of learning in his day and find the most brilliant young students. He didn't go to the centers of government and power and and find a bunch of powerful people. He didn't go and find the most charismatic, the leaders. He found nobodies because it wasn't about them. It was about him. Jesus is the focus. Jesus is the word become flesh. So as we go through this passage, I want you to ask yourself, what is God saying to us about his son, Jesus? What is God saying to us about his son, Jesus? That is the whole point of these words. God chose these words to be written by this disciple named John. God put you here this morning to hear these words. Now, why did he do that? Why aren't you at the beach right now taking a a nice walk on a sunny day? Why aren't you at some Buddhist meditation center right now? Why aren't you home watching TV? Why are you here this morning? The answer is that you are here to hear these words. God wants you to come to know him through his son, Jesus. He wants you to come to know him, to know about him, and to know him personally. That's why Jesus said and did these things, and that's why God inspired John to write these words, and that's why you're here listening to them this morning. So let's listen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read the text for us. John chapter 1. Verses 43 through 51. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward, toward him and said of him, 
Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated and join me as I pray for us. Lord, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that we would approach it with awe, with trembling, as the book of Isaiah says. We want to be people who tremble before your word because it is living and active, because it is your word. It is divine and powerful, and it speaks to our lives, our hearts today. Lord, would you speak to us through your word this morning? Use it to change us, to shape us. Help us, God, we pray in in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what do we learn about Jesus in this passage? We know, of course, that Jesus is the way to God. We know that Jesus reveals God to us. I think of that passage at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. says, long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He gave us little bits of information through these prophets that he picked. But through Jesus, he gives us a lot of information through not just a prophet, but his son. Through, through little bits of information through these prophets, we got little glimpses of who God is. Came to understand God a, a, a little bit more and more over the centuries. But through Jesus, we have a final revelation, a definite, vibrant, full picture of who God is. So let's focus on him. If that's who Jesus is, he reveals God to us. Let's focus on him. I want to focus on three things. Jesus, our king, Jesus, our friend, and Jesus, our God. Now, you may have noticed that this passage doesn't say anything about Jesus being a king. If we're going to talk about Jesus as king, you might have noticed he's not wearing a crown. He's not sitting on a throne. He doesn't live in a palace, but I want you to pay attention to what he's doing. If you look closely, you can see a king. Look at verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone up to a random person and said, follow me? Have you ever picked a stranger and approached them and commanded them to obey you? Uh, Of course not. Now, nobody does that. So why is Jesus doing that? Jesus doesn't know Philip. He's never met him before. So what right does Jesus have to walk up to this guy and say, follow me? Like, you need to drop everything and make me your priority. You need to listen to me. You need to do what I tell you to do. Jesus isn't his boss. Jesus isn't his dad. So what is he? What gives Jesus this kind of power 
and authority? The answer is that Jesus is his king. Jesus is the king, and everybody is his subject. We've all read stories about kings. We've all watched movies about kings. We know that a king in his kingdom can go up to anybody and say, do this, and that person has to do it because he's the king, and everybody is his subject. That's what Philip realized and went on to share with Nathanael. In verse 45, he tells Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. What he's saying there, what that would have meant for them in that culture, in that context at that time, those words meant we have found the king. What he means is that we have found the Messiah. And at that time, their understanding of the Messiah, that promised Messiah in the Old Testament, was that the Messiah would be a king who would reign forever and ever. That was the main thing they expected from the Messiah. They expected him to be the promised king in the line of David who would sit on the throne forever. In the history of the, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they, they had Moses as their leader. They had judges as their, as their leaders. They had all these different kinds of leaders. And there was a... a a monarchy that arose. Eventually they had kings who became the leaders because they didn't want God to be, to be their king. They wanted human kings, which sounds silly, but how many things do we do that in, re- in retrospect sound really silly, right? Somehow the Israelites got it into their head. We don't want to have God as our king. We want human kings. And so God gave them human kings and it was a disaster. And their reigns lasted, you know, sometimes for 20 years, sometimes for Two years, it was just a disaster. These kings were horrible leaders and their reigns always came to an end and usually some sort of, some sort of terrible end, some sort of disastrous end. But they were promised by the prophets that one day they would have a good king, a great king whose reign would never come to an end. That's who Jesus is. He's that great king. I remember listening to a lecture from a philosopher at Harvard one time, and he was lecturing on ethics. And he posed a really interesting question in one of his lectures. He posed the question of, who owns me? For all of us, we can ask that question, who owns me? Ethically speaking, do I really own myself? Do I really have the right to do whatever I want? Am I really the king of my life? If I produce something, do I really own that thing? Well, not really, because the government gets a cut of it, right? Do I have the complete freedom to control my body however I want? No, you don't. Hey, when you're, when you're on the freeway, you do not have the freedom to extend your right foot as far as you want for as long as you want, because that's going to, of course, accelerate your car over the speed limit, You don't have the freedom to do that. You don't have the freedom to use your body however you want. So in this lecture, this guy points out and he explains that ethically speaking, we all think that it's an ethical principle, an ethical maxim that we own ourselves, but the reality is we don't. We don't have that kind of control. And ultimately, even if we were given that kind of control by the government, Ultimately, the answer is no, you do not own you. You are not the king of your life or the queen of your life. Nobody is. 
because Jesus is the one true king. Jesus, we are his subjects. He has the right to walk up to anybody and say, follow me. In the ancient world, it was common for people to choose a a teacher or a rabbi. So in ancient Greek culture, for example, that they would have been intimately familiar with, a, a child or his parents might pick a teacher to learn from. Or if you were Jewish, you might pick a rabbi to follow. The choice was yours. You pick who you want to learn from or follow. But notice what's going on in this passage. They're not picking Jesus. Jesus is picking them. You don't choose Jesus. Jesus chooses you. And sometimes people get offended by that. Why is that? We get offended by the idea that that ultimately the choice comes down to Jesus making the choice more so than us making the choice. We get offended by, by the fact that Jesus walks around and commands people to follow him. I think ultimately we struggle with the idea of somebody else telling us what to do. Anybody enjoy that? Anybody like it when other people tell you what to do? How about giving up control? Do you enjoy handing control over your life to other people? Anybody enjoy that? No, none of us. We don't like that. But Jesus demands it because he's the king. We, we, we are not in a position where we should be choosing our own teachers, choosing our own rabbis. There's a great danger in that. The Bible warns us about choosing our own teachers. Remember, these guys, Nathaniel, Philip, Andrew, Peter, they would have been accustomed to picking their own rabbi. And then Jesus walks up and picks them. It was a total reversal, but there's a reason for that. Because when we choose our own teachers, it doesn't go well. Kind of like when Israel chose their own kings. Second Timothy chapter 4 warns us. It says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Here's the sad truth about human beings. If we choose our own teachers, we'll choose people who will tell us what we want to hear. We'll choose people who affirm what we already believe People who just make us feel good will will prioritize comfort over truth. We can't be trusted to pick our own rabbis and teachers. Look at human history. All of human history is a testimony to the fact that we can't be trusted to do things our own way. So let's stop trying to do things our own way and let's trust Jesus to do things his way. After all, he's the king. He's the king. If you're here today, then Jesus is speaking to you and he's saying, follow me. That's the amazing thing about the Bible. It records this historical series of events where Jesus went up to Nathanael and he, and he went up to Philip and he commanded them to follow him. But the Bible is more than just a historical record. It is an accurate, true historical record of real things that really happened to real people But it's also divine. It's also living and active. Such that when Jesus speaks to Philip, follow me, he's also speaking to you. 
saying, follow me. So are you going to do it? Are you going to take his word as truth? Are you going to obey his commandments? Or just some of the time, just some of them? Are you going to submit yourself to Jesus? Or are you going to try to pick and choose? Are you going to bow before the king? There's something that we need to understand about this king. We need to understand that he knows us. He knows everything about us. And yet, he still loves us. He still wants to be our friend. Listen to the dialogue between Jesus and Nathaniel, starting in verse 47. Jesus sees Nathaniel coming and says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Do you want to know why Jesus changed the world? It's things like this. He knew what was in people's hearts. He sees this guy that he's never met before, and he says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. There is no deceit in this man. There is no duplicity in him. He's an honest man. He looked at a guy he's never met before and said, That is an honest man. How did he know that? We're told repeatedly in the Gospel of John that Jesus had supernatural insight into people's hearts, into their deepest selves, such that he really knew them, even if he had never met them before. This is not some psychic trick. It's not a magic trick. This is a real, meaningful, personal knowledge. And notice how Nathaniel replies. It affirms this. He says, how do you know me? What Jesus said struck a chord. It hit the mark. And so he says, how do you know me? And then he says something really interesting. He says in verse 48, Jesus says, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel's response here is is pretty baffling. He cries out, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So so notice what's going on in, in this dialogue. Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He says, how do you know me? Clearly, you know something. You know me deep inside, my my real self. How do you know that? He says, well, I saw you under the fig tree. And then he replies, Rabbi, you are the son of God. Clearly, it wasn't like he saw him under the fig tree 20 minutes ago in a normal, ordinary sense. There's something much bigger going on here. Something happened under the fig tree that, that... that Nathaniel, that he's, or yeah, that he's, he's baffled by. And nobody really understands exactly what happened under that fig tree. The Bible doesn't tell us, but there's one theory that, that's always made a lot of sense to me. I think that Nathaniel had a very profound experience under a fig tree. Maybe it was the day before he met Jesus, or, or maybe it was years before. We're not sure what this experience was, but maybe he was praying and had a, an extraordinary sense of the presence of God. Maybe he was under a fig tree all alone late one night in turmoil, crying out to God for help. We don't really know what it was, but he had a very vulnerable, deep, personal experience. And then Jesus says, I saw you there. Jesus says, I know what happened under that fig tree. I was there. 
And Nathanael was so amazed that he cried out, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. So I want to invite you to think about those kinds of moments in your life. Those moments where you're all alone and wrestling with God. Those, Those deepest and darkest moments of your life. Maybe some of the highest, most beautiful moments of clarity. Jesus saw you there. Jesus was with you. Jesus knows you. Jesus is that kind of friend in your life. Friends are the people who walk most closely with us in life. They're the ones that are there for us in all of the the hardest things and all of the happiest things. And what we're seeing is that Jesus is a friend like that. I think of Psalm chapter 56, verse 8. It says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Think about that. The psalmist sang to God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sang to God, You have kept count of my tossings. As in those nights when I was so stressed out I couldn't sleep, when my life was such a mess that, that I, I, I tossed and I turned all night, God was paying such close attention. He was so deeply concerned that he kept count of the number of times you turned over on your pillow. That, that every tear you cry, God is, God is like a, a, a mom who saves that little lock of hair from the baby's first haircut because everything about that baby is just so precious says the, the tears that the psalmist cried, God, you put those tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? As if, a God, as if God has a book of every, every sorrowful event in our lives, that he pays attention, that he tracks it all. Or Psalm chapter 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Jesus is the living demonstration of these truths. Nathaniel would have known these psalms as a good Jewish man in that time. He would have known these psalms and they probably would have brought comfort to him. And the day that we're reading about in this passage is the day that these psalms came to life in front of him. Jesus was the embodiment of the love of God. The deep concern that God has for us, Jesus embodied that. The intimate knowledge that God has of all of our tears and all of our tossing and turning, Jesus embodied that. He was the embodiment of the culmination of the love of God. And we also see in this passage that he was the culmination of the presence of God. That's the essence of what he's communicating in verse 51. Look again at verse 51. He tells Nathanael, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's actually referring back to a famous story In the history of Israel, it comes from Genesis chapter 28. And in Genesis chapter 28, we have Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham. 
And Jacob has a dream one night. In this dream, there was a ladder that started where he was camping, and this ladder extended all the way up to heaven. And, and there's angels coming down this ladder from heaven to earth, and angels coming from earth and going up to heaven via this ladder. And then God speaks to Jacob from heaven, and he, he reiterates the covenant that he had made with his family to give them the land of Israel and to bless the whole world through them and to multiply their descendants, as many as the stars in the sky. And, and, and Jacob noticed in the dream that the angels were descending right to the spot where he was sleeping. And then he wakes up. And when he wakes up, this is what he says. Follow along on your notes, Genesis 28, verses 16 through 17. He has that dream, and he wakes up and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And you know what Jesus does? Verse 51, he takes that story and he applies it to himself. He, he uses the exact same words, but he changes it so that the angels are no longer descending on that place where Jacob slept. Instead, the angels are descending on Jesus. Jesus, he uses that title, the Son of Man, which is a divine title that Jesus likes to apply to himself. And it's really confusing because we read it and think, Son of Man, why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? I'm a son of man, you're, you're a son or daughter of man, we're all children of man. So is Jesus saying that he's human? No, he's saying that he's divine. The Son of Man is a title that comes from the book of Daniel comes from Daniel chapter 7. And if you go back and read it, and you see the way that title is used in Daniel chapter 7, you'll see, ah, Jesus is saying that he's divine. And there's a whole background to this and the way that, that the, the Hebrew language worked. And, and ultimately what he's saying is he's, he's the son of man in a divine sense. But if you put all the pieces together, this is what Jesus is ultimately getting at by using those words in verse 51. He's applying Jacob's dream to himself. So read again verses 16 through 17 from the book of Genesis chapter 28. Jacob said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. What Jesus is saying is, I am none other than the house of God. I am the gate of heaven. I am where God dwells. Isn't that amazing? Later he would say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. That's what he told his disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen God. He would say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is what Jesus is saying. That's who Jesus is. That's why we follow him. Jesus, our king, Jesus, our friend, and Jesus, our God. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you would give us a greater appreciation for who you are. A greater understanding of who you are and a greater appreciation for it. You are magnificent, Jesus, that you would be a king
and also our friend. That you would be our friend, that you would care about us and also be God. Like, who are we that, that you, that you, God, would pay attention to us? That you would take the time to know us, that you would put our tears in your bottle. God, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for caring about us. I pray that these truths would, would fill our hearts and minds and give us great joy and peace and a great passion to, to know you and make you known. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.